all of us who have been saved should be able to look back in our memories. And we should be able to remember a faithful Christian that was responsible with bringing us to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. For some of us, maybe it's, it's not one person, maybe it's a multiple people. I want you to pick one. I want you to think of the person, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it was a friend. Think of a person that you would say is responsible, as much as a human can be, for bringing you to a saving faith. Who was that person that poured into your life that was faithful to bring a testimony of salvation to you? That helped to answer your questions. That helped you to understand what it means to know a Savior who lives in an invisible dwelling away from us. What it means to have hope for a future looking forward to spending eternity with God. Can you think of that person? You have one name. I want to count to three and I'm going to ask, can we all just say that one name out loud together? Loudly. Does everyone have it? One, two, three. Derek. Dad. I heard someone say Derek. That was nice. That was my wife. We didn't get here on our own. We stand on a foundation that has been laid before us. And, and listen to me, loved ones, the foundation that we stand on isn't a foundation that was laid even by men, even by women, even as we look at those who were faithful to pour into our lives that brought us to knowing Christ. Do we not recognize that it was God Almighty, El Shaddai, the God who is capable, who is sufficient, that laid that foundation for us. Standing here in this church, in this pulpit this morning, I am not a church planter. I did not found this congregation. God laid a foundation before even the time that I was born. When was this church founded? In 83, something like that? Somewhere in the 80s. I was born in the 90s. So, so at least a decade before me. Some of you are realizing how young I am. I didn't lay this foundation. God laid this foundation. And there's generations coming after us. I, I pray that there are generations coming after us. What are we to do with these generations? Well, we're to be thankful for those that have laid a foundation before us. Last week I threw you all off. I, I tried something new because looking at Hebrews chapter 11, it, it is a, a quick fire, rapid succession of looking at these people that give us confidence for today. And so I said that you would get three sermons last week for the price of one. Now, if any of you were paying attention, you found out it wasn't really three sermons. It was one sermon with three main points. So I can't do that again. Today has five church fathers. I might say that it was five sermons, but that's really not what we're going to look at. It's, again, one sermon with one main point, and we're looking at it in this way so that we can understand what the main point of faith is. Faith that has been defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen, the spiritual spectacles that we are able to put on to see which is invisible. 
Faith that allows us to see that which cannot be observed in a physical sense. The point in what God is giving us is that He supplies the faith. This foundation that we've been talking about, this foundation that gives us confidence moving forward, this foundation that we want to build upon comes from God. If we say that we have a saving faith, we do not say that our faith is what saved us. We say God putting that faith inside of us is what saved us. That means, think about this. If it's not your faith that saves you, but faith that God supplied to you that saves you. As we look at the stories of Abel, who was able to worship by faith, or Enoch, who was able to live by faith and walk with God, or Noah, who was able to make a public testimony by faith. If we're able to look at Abraham, who waited by faith, who went by faith, and who remained faithful until the end. All these things that we looked at last week. Then we can say now that the same faith that endured in them is the same faith that will endure in you. If you're trusting in a faith that was given to you by God, This is the very meaning of grace. If you're trusting in a faith given to you by God, then that same faith that is in you is the same faith that was in Abraham. Consider that. As we consider what encouragement we should take from Hebrews chapter 11. The faith that is in you was put there by God. Therefore, we should pray that God would give us an enduring faith that we might lay a foundation for generations to come after us. That is, unless He comes to take us home before then, which honestly, I pray that would be the case. That we should pray that God would show us what we're to do with our faith. Now here's the critical point. This is the turn Last week we looked at what is faith and we looked at examples of faith and we we spent some time applying that. This is the critical point that we need to pay attention to. What are we going to do with such a lofty faith planted and given to us by God? I'll give you my four points this morning. That's right, we're looking at five church fathers, but I only have four points. Eventually, we'll get down to only three sermons. What are we to do with our faith? We're to remain committed to it. We're to allow ourselves to be convinced of its goodness. We are to become convicted for it. And we are to confess that faith in all that we do. You have my four points. Let's look at what really matters. Are you ready to look at the text? Our text this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 28. I pray your Bibles will be open, that you'd be ready to read along with me as I read out loud. But first, I cannot assume to do anything without praying to my Father. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we turn to your word. God, I pray that you would guide us, 
Give us understanding of your word as we walk through it, as we explain it, as we seek to understand it, that we would not seek understanding that comes from man, but that we would seek understanding that comes from your spirit, that moves in our heart, that illuminates the meaning of text for us. And God, we pray that you would supply this for us, that you would not withhold this understanding from us. God, I pray that as we prepare to understand your word and to receive it, that our hearts would be receptive. God, that we would be a soft-hearted people, not a hard-hearted people, that we would be ready to turn and to face you, not a stiff-necked people. God, I thank you for the confidence that we have, and I pray that you would go with us as we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was a grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ministered, mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. We begin then by looking at Abraham's faith. I gave you my four points this morning, so you should already have some expectation at what we're looking at when we turn to Abraham. That is, what are we to do with our faith? We're to be committed to it. We see what commitment to our faith looks like when God tells Abraham to offer up his only son. Those of you that have spent time in Sunday school and are familiar with such stories, remember that God told Abraham to take his son Isaac up to a mountain where he would offer him as a sacrifice before the Lord, where he would plunge a dagger into the soft skin of his own flesh. What's significant about that? Isaac wasn't just his son. Isaac was the promised seed through which God's blessings were going to come in Abraham's life. I want you to hold your place in Hebrews 11, but if you would, flip back to Genesis chapter 21, where we find the root of this story. 
Abraham wasn't just his posterity, wasn't just his descendant, but God had said something specific about Isaac to Abraham in Genesis 21, verse 12. God said to Abraham, Be not displeased with the boy, and because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For, and this is the important bit, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now we looked at Abraham's faith Sunday evening a week ago. We said that Abraham was faithful as he went. He was told by God to leave and go into a promised land set apart for him, and he went wandering without a place to go, dwelling in tents. He was faithful as he waited because God said he was going to give him a son, and he waited in the delivery room. He finally brought Isaac. Now, at this point in Genesis 21, or I'm sorry, a chapter later in Genesis 22, Isaac's no longer a promised seed through which God's blessings are going to come, and Abraham will be made a nation, great and innumerable, with people as innumerable as the sands on the seashore, as great and as vast as the stars that are in heaven. But now, Isaac is going to be the one through which his prosperity will grow. This blessing from God will take place. Now, Abraham, we've already seen him. He was faithful until the end of his life. But more than that, he was committed beyond measure when God said, flip over a chapter, Genesis 22, verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the level of faith that it would require to walk somebody who was a promise to you, who was the fulfillment of all of these promises, to lay an altar of, of stone and of sticks and, and for kindling and to lay them down on top of it and to prepare to watch it burn in flames? To watch their body consumed. Why did Abraham do this? He did it because he was committed to his faith. You see, God gave him the promise that through Isaac would become all these blessings, that he would become a nation great and innumerable. In Hebrews chapter 11, our author gives us commentary on this very situation, saying that Abraham, when this time came, was confident, he considered, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That word considered, that word considered, or in King James, it's the word he accounted. He accounted. Both of these come from the word, which means that this wasn't something he did kind of wistfully, or he thought, well, it's possible that if I'm faithful to God and I do what he tells me to do, that God would raise him from the dead if he wanted to. No, he was confident. He had faith spectacles on to be able to say that God has promised me that through Isaac these blessings will come, and I'm going to do what God tells me to do because God's already told me that through Isaac my posterity will become as numerable as the stars. And therefore, I have confidence to do what God has told me to do because He will raise Him from the dead. He must because He's a faithful God. 
See, that word accounting or considered means that he was calculated in contemplating what it means to come before God. He considered that God would be faithful. How do we know that Abraham had such confidence? You don't have to look at this, but if you still have your finger on Genesis 22, verses 3 and 5, as Abraham and Isaac prepare to go up to the mountain, as they prepare to go up to the high places to make this sacrifice, what is it that Abraham says to the servants at the bottom of the mountain? He says, we shall return to you. Not I will return to you, not he'll come back, but that we will return to you. He had every intention of his, in his heart of being faithfully committed to what God had told him to do. That means that he took the promises of God, he took the commandments of God, and he was faithful because of the promises to do what God had told him to do in offering up his son, the one whom he loved, his only son. And he was going to do it with confidence, with faith, spiritual spectacles that allowed him to see that a faithful God who promised to bless him through this would bring his son back to life. That they would return. In the plural, they would return back down from the mountain. What then are we supposed to do with our faith? In application, what are we supposed to do with such a faith? I mean, think about this. God has given Abraham a promise. Imagine me giving you a promise. A check's kind of like a promise, isn't it? I can write all sorts of checks. I'm good at putting zeros on checks. Not good at cashing them, but I like writing them. My favorite game to play as a child, my grandma picked up a, a, a stack of temporary checks from Sam's Club, and I wrote all the checks in the world. If anyone ever found, finds those, I know I'll be in a lot of trouble. I'm not faithful to my word in that sense, not like God. God has given us something richer, more precious than a check with all of the zeros on it. He handed it to Abraham in blessing him with a child named Isaac. And he told Abraham to take that check and to burn it. Not to go to the bank and, and cash it. I mean, it's good. He told him to burn it. And Abraham's confidence was such that God is so faithful to his word, even if I burn this promissory note, God's going to be faithful to his word. We should have commitment in obeying the things that God has called us to obey. Commitment that makes us stand out as absurd. Commitment to obey God based on the goodness of His promises. We should be prompted to be a people committed not just to God's Word, but to living it out. Just like Abraham. I said with our faith we should be committed. The second point is that we should be convinced. Now this is the hard part. If I was truly convinced of God's Word, it would be a lot easier to be committed to it. Isn't that true? We find this next example in the life of Isaac, also in the life of Jacob. Looking at our text, we find that it was verse 20, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 
By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of their staff. Now consider this just for a moment, that we should be convinced of the promises of God to such extent that we trust Him in everything that He does. Let's back up a little bit and, and get the picture. What's, what's going on here with Isaac? In Genesis chapter 27, we find the story of just how, um, just how Isaac would become blessed. Isaac became old and asking his oldest to prepare for him a meal so that he could give him a blessing. His wife, Rebecca, favored his younger child. That is, he favored the younger Jacob rather than his older brother. And so she convinced Jacob to deceive her, his father. Remember how he had to do this? The Bible says that Jacob was a not-so-hairy man, but his brother was quite hairy. And so Jacob put on a woolly garment so that as he went to his father with poor eyesight, his father would say, well, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. And he would feel his hands and, and he was deceived. And so his father gave the blessing that was the rightful place should have been given to the oldest son, the one who had a right of inheritance. Instead, he gave it to the younger son. What's significant about this in the book of Hebrews is that Isaac did not recant that blessing. He didn't take it back. He didn't say, I've been duped. You've deceived me. You've lied to me. This blessing is not yours. It does not belong to you. Rather, he said, what's done is done. Now, this is kind of strange. How can we say what's done is done? Aren't we in control of our own lives? Don't we have control of how things move in our lives and the things that we're involved in? Even though Jacob deceived his father, listened to his mother who was um, giving him really bad advice, Jacob simply said, rather, I'm sorry, Isaac simply said, this was what God wanted. If we were convinced of God's promises, I think we would view things that do not go our way differently. If we were truly convinced of God's promises to the extent that we believed that God was capable of doing everything that He said that He was going to do, when we view hardships or we view things that are not going the way that we would like them to, we would say it's by God's will that they're not going the way that we would like them to. That's a terribly difficult pill to swallow. That's a terrible truth to take hold of. But it's also a great blessing in the sense that we find this blessing that has been given to Abraham and then to Isaac being passed to Jacob through deceit, that this blessing that goes to Jacob does not go to him because he deserved it, but rather it goes to him because he needs it. I know that it's difficult to look at hardships, to look at suffering, to look at pain, and to look at sickness, and to say, God is allowing this to happen for whatever reason. By God's will, we are going through this. But when that happens, being convinced of God's promises, I trust that in Him, good things are meant through this. 
That isn't just to say that a greater good might come out of it. That is to say that by faith, I am convinced of the promises of God, the good things that He has promised in His Word. Even when things don't go according to plan, God blesses me according to my need, not on the basis of deserving it. And because He blesses me based off of my need, greater need can only mean more blessings from God. I mean, if you follow the logic here, that's the only conclusion we could possibly reach. Greater need can only ever mean greater blessings from God. I'm so glad that God does not bless me on the basis of my deserving. I'm so thankful that I do not experience God's goodness based on what I deserve. Because there would be nothing there for me. I have no deserving of God's goodness. His promises are an extension of His goodness simply because He's great, not because I deserve them. The same is true of you. By faith, Isaac gave a blessing to Jacob. I'm sorry. Yes. And then by faith, in verse 21, Jacob. Oh, this is, this is remarkable. If you wanted to look at Genesis 48, verses 11 through 12, something incredible happens here. Jacob, who's now called by the name Israel, because God has changed his name. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Well, this is an incredible scene in all of the Bible. Oh, it's an incredible thing to have children. I can't wait for the day that I have grandchildren. So here we have the scene of Jacob with his staff bowing down to the ground, blessing not just his children, but his grandchildren. And what happens as Joseph brings his sons to him? He brings the older with his left hand to, uh, to Israel's right hand. And Israel switches his hands, doesn't he, in Genesis 48? The blessings get switched around. Again, the blessings that Israel is giving to Joseph's children, it goes to the younger. He puts his right hand on the younger. The same thing that happened to him when his name was Jacob. He's convinced of the goodness of God in doing what has been done. He switches his hands, trusting that this is God's will. This faith that is emanated from these men is that they trust even when circumstances come by surprise. Because if you read in Genesis 48, I, I won't go there, but I would encourage you to, to look at that. You, what you find is Joseph protests and he says, Dad, you've put your hand on the wrong son. It goes the other way. When things don't go our way by faith, we have confidence that this is what God designed for us. That His goodness has put it into motion. I am convinced of His goodness so much so that I can be committed like Abraham. And with such commitment, I can move forward to being obedient to God and what He tells me to do. Let's move on. Because that's not the end of Joseph's story, is it? By faith... If you look at verse 22, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, Joseph brings us to the end of the book of Genesis. 
And Joseph's a remarkable character. We know Joseph for his faithfulness. He's one of the younger brothers of Jacob. And what's so remarkable about him? But that God has chosen him. That he experiences more hardship than we could possibly imagine being sold into slavery by his brothers. He goes into exile as a, a slave worker in Egypt. He's falsely accused of wrongdoing and thrown into prison. And all the while, Joseph continues to repeat over and over and over again, you meant harm for me, but God meant it for good. I can say pretty confidently that Joseph was convinced of the promises of God. Even in all this hardship, Joseph was convinced of God's promises towards him. Not only that, but he was committed. He remained committed in doing what God instructed him to do when God instructed him to do it. He demonstrates waiting. He demonstrates going. But most importantly, this is our third C. Because with our faith, we're not just to be committed. We're not just to be convinced, but we're to be convicted. And I say that Joseph was convicted for his faith. Now, conviction is a word that gets a bad rap. Because oftentimes when we mention the word conviction, the only idea that comes to mind is having our toes stepped on or having our feelings hurt or somebody saying something that prompts a sense of guilt that bubbles up inside of us. Listen to me, that's not what I mean by conviction. You should not feel guilty in your faith. In fact, if you feel guilty, you're missing the whole point of grace because you've been forgiven. You should feel guilty if you continue to live in sin. But you've been delivered from that by the grace of God. Do we have confidence to say that we are not those that will stray away or those that will shrink back and be destroyed, but we are those who have faith and have the ability to preserve our souls? We say that we have faith. Conviction does not mean feeling guilty. Conviction is what happens when being convinced bubbles up to full maturity. Conviction is what happens when we look at truth, we're convinced of it, and it causes a change in us. Here's what I mean by that. To be convicted for my faith means I'm stirred up. I'm not a cool ember sitting by the fireside, not at the campfire. I am a roaring fire that is blazing. To be convicted means that I have full assurance to act just a little bit crazy. Say, I don't, I don't know about that, Brother Derek. I just don't know if I can handle being one of those religious fanatics. I really don't think it would go over well for me. It just doesn't go along with my image on social media. It doesn't go along with my personal brand that I've created for myself. It doesn't match necessarily the reputation that I have at work. I just can't be one of those religious fanatics. You know what a religious fanatic is? Someone that loves Jesus just a bit more than you do. 
I am not ashamed to be a religious fanatic. By that means, I'm not ashamed to be a religious nut. I'm not only convinced of the things that are found inside of the Bible, I'm not only convinced that everything in these 66 books is true. I'm not just committed to living in a way that glorifies God by the means that I have, looking by His sovereignty and His grace to provide for me not only circumstances, but the ability and the strength. I am convicted of it. I believe there's no other way In fact, I don't believe that there's any other way to live. At the end of Joseph's life, he was no longer experiencing hardships that we're familiar with in talking about Joseph. Rather, he was put in a position that the good that God meant for him was clearly demonstrated. The second most authoritative person in all of Egypt, right underneath the king. And he was given wisdom, the ability to lead, and he set aside a storehold because he knew that a time of pestilence was coming. A time when there would be famine, when there would not be food in all of the land. And he set it aside, and he did great things in Egypt. His children were in Egypt. And because the famine was so far spread, his family members, remember his his father was able to come and see his own children. His family members had to leave the land that they were sojourning in to come to Egypt to get food for themselves. And they stayed in the house of Joseph and he provided for them. But at the end of Joseph's life, his faith was not in the good that had come. It wasn't in the blessings that sprouted up in his life. It wasn't that he was the second most authoritative person in the world. It wasn't that he had amassed wealth. It wasn't that he had amassed success. What was his faith in? He says in Genesis 50, verse 25, at the end of his life, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. What a strange thing to say. Joseph must be a religious nut, because I don't know why he would say such a thing. He has everything that he needs. Comfortable, success. I mean, he has really enough comfortability and means to provide not only for his children, but probably his children's children, and so on after that. Why would he possibly, why would he possibly give all of this up? His faith was in God's promises, which promised a new land. The promise that had been given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Joseph's children. His confidence was in that promise because he was convicted of it. And So at the end of his days, he said, don't spend time digging out a big tomb for me. Don't buy me a big monument because, listen, there's a day coming when God's going to come and get you. And I want you to take me with you. I want you to get my bones, and I want you to take them with you. So make sure they're easily accessible. That's what I want you to do with my body. His faith was not only convinced of the future, but he was convicted of that future. He's able to walk with God by faith as he, as he leaves this body, as he's separated in these terms. <clears throat> He waited 
for the day that would come when he would finally enter into God's promises. Convicted of it, he's just a little nutty. We're on to our last point then. With our faith, we're not only supposed to be committed to it, not only supposed to be convinced of it, not only supposed to be convicted of it, but we are to be confessing it. Confessing it. Committed, convinced, convicted, and confessed. In the life of Moses, verse 23, our text begins. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, the first act of faith that we find in the life of Moses summarized for us here. If we wanted to look back at Exodus chapter 2, we would find that Moses' parents, whatever it was about this child when he was born, they looked at him and they said, well, he's quite handsome. The text says, the child was beautiful. I don't know if they observed some particular blessing that was from God on Moses or whatever that he was destined for greatness, that he would become one of the greatest fathers of the faith of all that we would look back on and remember him, that the first five books of the Bible are attributed to his name, calling them the books of Moses. I don't know what it was. They said that he was beautiful. And even though the king of Egypt had told them, to drown all of the Egyptian boys. They saw he was beautiful and they said, we just can't do it, so let's hide him. For three months they hid him. I don't know where they hid him, maybe a cupboard. I think you could probably hide a baby for three months. Those first three months is... As long as you can get them to sleep, get their bellies full. But then that's the tough work with that is you got to keep their bellies full without letting them throw up. Babies are tough. I don't know how they did it. Three months they kept a baby hidden. I think we could have hid Charlotte for three months. There's no way we could have hid Bubba for three months. Charlotte was a pretty quiet baby. She was born preemie, so her lungs were weak. Charlie, not so much. first act of faith was in his parents trusting in the promises of God for whatever reason. They did not fear the king's edict. Instead, they hid Moses. Verse 24 goes on by faith when he was grown up. So this isn't Moses, the young man. This isn't Moses, the young boy. What happens in Moses' life after they can't hide him anymore? They take him and they put him in a basket with a lid on top of it and they seal it and they hide it away inside of the, the reeds in the river. What happens is Pharaoh's daughter comes by and they find it. And, and then Miriam, Moses' sister, comes to her and says, Hey, you found a baby. You want to keep that? You know what you need? You need someone to feed him. Why don't you take one of the Hebrew women and let her nurse him? And so that's what they did. And so Moses was back with his mom until she weaned him and she gave him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And, and here again we have Moses, destined for greatness, in the land of Egypt living under the authority of Pharaoh, in the house of Pharaoh, called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had everything he could possibly need. He could have, by title, claimed his position as royalty, couldn't he? 
Every provision he could possibly ask for was met. The physical blessings that he could have possibly asked for were given to him in this house. But here's Moses' great act of faith. When he was grown, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Tell me, how do you arrive at such a conclusion that you would set aside a surety and confidence? In the physical sense, these things that it seems like everyone's running after. I, I want to make sure that I'm stable. I want to make sure that I know what my future holds for me. I want to make sure that I'm not susceptible to uh, inflation. Too bad, we're all susceptible to inflation. All of these things... And Moses says, let me set that aside because I don't want to be called an Egyptian. I want to identify with my people, the people of Israel, who at this point are no longer an honored people under Joseph's rulership, but have become a threat to Pharaoh to the extent that they are now slaves in Egypt, being put to forced hard labor and everything else. Moses chooses to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. What in the world? I think in order to do that, I would not only need to be committed to what God has told me to do in identifying with His people. There's the first one. I'm committed to identifying with the people that God has set apart. I'm committed to identifying with the church. I'm committed to identifying with my people Israel. I'm convinced that the blessing that I will receive as a result of identifying with this people is greater than the blessing that I will receive by inheriting all of the riches of Pharaoh. Give me the poor slaves who have the blessing of God. I'd rather be with them than be in Pharaoh's house. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know, we often read the Exodus story uh, from the lens that, that Moses got fed up one day, saw somebody being mistreated, and out of a, an overflow of righteous indignation, he raised his hand up and he killed an Egyptian, and because of that he had to flee because he made Pharaoh mad. The author of Hebrews gives us a commentary by the authority of God telling us that it was not an indignant, um, it wasn't an indignant anger that rose up in him that caused this to happen. It was a volitional choice to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because he considered being in, the author of Hebrews says, the reproach of Christ making the connection again for us that the promises that are found in Genesis and in Exodus are fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so these promises fulfilled in the culmination of this. Therefore, Moses trusted in the reproach of Christ and considered it greater than the treasures of Egypt. And so he took himself and he separated himself from those things so that he could be in this blessing. Not because he saw something that made him a little upset and he rose his hand against an Egyptian out of a, a place of kind of 
A lack of impulse control. But he did it because he chose God. Because he was committed to what God told him to do. Convinced of the promises that God had given to his people. So much so that he was convicted of the goodness. Because verse 27 goes on, By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What? Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible? Who's invisible? He's not invisible if you have faith. Moses saw what cannot be seen physically by faith, observing God, no longer afraid. Look, there's zeal that comes with this. This is conviction. This is being stirred up. He's not afraid of Pharaoh's anger because he's seen an almighty. By faith, he did not turn away. Second Corinthians 4 Verses 17 and 18 gives us a testimony of this invisible observance that we have by faith. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. By faith, we have the ability to see what cannot be seen. Looking back at this testimony of faith through Abraham, through Joseph, through Jacob, through Isaac, through Moses, all of these people, even in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. What is the point of all of this? Remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to a particular people who are at risk of apostasy. That is, turning away from a confession of faith that they had previously made. Not that their salvation is called in, um, that, that salvation's not secure, but listen, if you're able to turn away from your faith, it never was secure. They're at risk of turning away from this because the church is experiencing persecution. These Hebrew, this Hebrew audience that he is writing to are at risk of shrinking back. That's why he says in chapter 10, verse 39. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Here's where faith comes into the picture. You cannot live with one foot in the world and one foot in faith. There's not a middle ground. That's why I think it's silly on this topic of being called a a Christian fanatic. You can't have it both ways. There's not really a diplomatic way to be a Christian. There just isn't. You do not get to live in this world and at the same time inherit the promises of God. God asks for everything. He gave everything to provide for us. This is what's so remarkable about Moses' faith as they observed the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, you realize that to take a Passover lamb for an average family, that is a costly expense. To slay a lamb, 
to take its blood and to put it into a bowl, to take hyssop and to rub it on the door frames. Why? You're crazy. Blood? Didn't we just have a plague of flies a few days ago and you want us to put blood on our door frame? I'm committed to what God tells me to do. I'm convinced of His promises, that I'm convicted to live my life in such a way that accords with His Word, that I would be confessing every day by what I do, what God has done for me. We can't have it both ways. This is what Jesus' half-brother tells us in James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does it mean to make a confession of faith? What does it mean to make a proclamation and to say that I've been saved by God's grace? It means to refute the world and to confess Christ and Christ crucified. What does it mean to make Christ Lord of our life? All of these phrases that we use oftentimes to confess Christ, to make Him Lord of my life. What does it mean? It means to surrender wholly everything that is inside of me to a Savior who is greater than everything that I have. This switches every notion that we have of comfortability in being a Christian around on its head. I don't say this to be an alarmist. Listen to me. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not trying to be a tabloid newspaper up here from the pulpit telling you that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. You can figure that out on your own. You don't need me to do that for you. You know what I am trying to do for you? I'm trying to point you to something greater. This is the whole point of Hebrews, isn't it? A greater high priest, a greater sacrifice, a greater temple, a greater hope, a greater perseverance. A greater faith. Set aside everything in this world that distracts us and make a new confession, wholly committed to God. Some of us, I believe, struggle to make such confessions. I mean, we live in a time where commitment's just a strange thing to begin with. Have you you heard about FOMO? F-O-M-O? It's the fear of missing out. We talk about it with the younger crowds oftentimes. That's why I'm explaining it so that you guys can understand. The fear of missing out. Because when you ask a friend to spend time with you, they say, yeah, I'd like to do that, but, but I don't really know that I, if I can commit to it yet. They wait until the last minute to, to actually commit to something. I remember when I was growing up, We went to school and somebody would bring birthday invitations to us and it would have an RSVP on the bottom of it. Because you would commit to going to that party because a person had to provide food and the host had to do all of these kinds of things. They don't do that nowadays because, well, there's a fear of missing out. I can't commit to that party. What if something else comes up and there's a contradiction in my calendar and I'd rather do this? Some friendship, right? I don't know what it is about our world today, but it seems like people are afraid of making a commitment. There's no room for a FOMO Christian. There's nothing greater coming along. 
There is nothing greater than the church. There is nothing greater than the testimony of saints gathered together, faithfully worshiping God because they are convinced of God's promises and they are convinced that God wants to bless them and care for them. They are convicted that the world needs the gospel proclaimed before them, that people will come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so they make a public confession with everything that they have before God and everybody. And they say, I am brand new. I've joined the ranks of the religious fanatics. I'm just a little bit crazy. You know why? Because I can see things that you can't see, but I'd like you to be able to see them. Our confession, our being able to confess Christ before people begins with being a little bit crazy. I am a little bit crazy. I'd like you to be crazy with me. what it means to make a confession. Do all this weird stuff that we do. To lay out the Lord's table and to put elements on it of bread and the fruit of the vine. To talk about drinking blood and eating flesh. Yeah, it's a little bit strange. You know why we do it? Because we were commanded to. And because I'm convinced of the promises that come with it when I say that this is the blood that was shed for you in the new covenant formed in my name. That the blessings come from it when Christ said that I long to eat this supper with you again, but I will not until we are in my Father's kingdom. When we observe the Lord's Supper in such a way, you know what we're doing? We're confessing Christ. We're confessing Him crucified. And we're putting in our minds that we're going to be with Him again. When we're baptizing people, do you know what we're doing? We're saying, hey, watch this. This crazy person has joined the ranks of us crazy people. We're not crazy by our own account, but we're crazy by the testimony of Christ that we're baptizing them by the profession of their faith, the confession of their faith. And they're identifying with Christ being buried in a tomb as they consider their own sinfulness being buried in a tomb. And as they come up, they identify with Christ being resurrected from the grave. As they long for the day, not only that they would have a new life now on earth walking with God like Enoch, but for the day that they would walk with Him in heaven. There is no middle ground for the Christian. It's all or nothing. Would you renew your confession this day? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I pray that we have heard it and received it faithfully. And I ask God that you would give us understanding as we continue to go throughout this day. God, I pray that we would make a confession for you in our lives, that we would be uninhibited by the distractions of this world, that we wouldn't be overcome by anything else, but God, that we would be a people committed to living out our faith for you. Convinced, convicted, committed, and confessed. In Jesus' name we pray.